Good morning, Dorp Hope Northeast. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we echo the prayer of the man who said, We believe, help our unbelief. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see you through the worship, through the word shared in your word, through a fellowship with one another. And may you be honored and glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Heard that? He goes first, I looked it up. This is just a Wikipedia entry, so let's hope it's right. First used by Geoffrey Chaucer in the 1300s, first time in English. And it just speaks to this idea that the closer and more familiar you get to something or someone, the more dulled to the virtues and, and sometimes more tuned to the vices of something you become. Um, a, a really tragic example of this, I think, is uh, when you look at statistics around divorce. Um, there's, there's two kind of key, key times, I guess, whenever, whenever divorce is most common in most marriages that end in divorce. The first is in the first year or second year. Um, kind of that brand new stage when you just get the shock of like living life, like covenanted to someone else and all that that implies. Um, that's probably the product of just not realizing what you had gotten yourself into in some, some cases, tragically. But, but the second one, uh, is, is sometime between years five through eight. And, and I think this represents this kind of thing. It's enough time has come for the relationship to, to kind of settle in. Neurochemically even, uh, the newness of the relationship and, and even the newness of the marriage and the excitement of this new thing that you've entered into uh, can begin to wane. And you're sort of left with this increasing familiarity with your spouse that tragically often results in this exact thing. You're so familiar now that, that the things that once drew you to them seem old hat, unexciting, uh, unadventurous, and, and the things that you had been able to, to overlook previously, maybe they're flaws, maybe they're faults, uh, maybe even something that's not a big deal, but suddenly for you it's become like a source of great agitation. Years five through eight is, is the most common time for couples to divorce, maybe for those reasons. Um, 
Maybe on the flip side, the opposite is true, that, that novelty brings about favor. Um, it's, it's no surprise, like, even in like, sort of Christian, the Christian world, it's no surprise that sort of like uh, you go to like, a Christian conference and everyone you've heard who's usually like, new to you, it's like, it's like the greatest message you've ever heard in your entire life. Um, the person who comes from furthest away kind of is able to speak most exotically and most excitingly into the thing. Um, there you go. Familiarity breeds contempt and maybe the opposite. Novelty brings or breeds favor. The story that, that Karen just read for us um, has to do with this exact dynamic. Uh, we've got a story once again of, of Jesus traveling and he enters, he enters a new place, uh, or rather an old place. He comes to his hometown. And there was a mention of Jesus, uh, Jesus' hometown back in chapter 1, uh, he comes from a town called Nazareth. And you, it doesn't say Nazareth here, but we, we can put two and two together. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. And in Mark, Jesus has been on this run of increasingly amazing miracles. Uh, we, we've, we talked about that. I'll recap it one more time. He has uh, calmed a storm supernaturally with the voice, with the, with, with the words of his speech. He commanded the waves and the winds to stop, and they stopped. And then he got in this altercation in, in non-Israelite territory with a man who it says was oppressed by a legion, an army of demons. And with his mere words, he commands the demons to flee, and it's a dramatic scene. And then last week, we looked at, we looked at the story of Jesus healing both a woman who had suffered greatly for 12 years from a physical ailment, and then raising a little girl from the dead. That's meant to be in Mark, kind of the peak. These three stories are all kind of cascading and crescendoing in this. He has power over death. Where he can grab a little girl by the hand and say, little girl, arise, wake up from death. That's the kind of power that Jesus has, has been displaying. And so you might think when he comes home uh, to his hometown, he's going to be met with accolades and celebration. And it's going to be sort of like this, the hometown hero, you know, coming home kind of dynamic. And it's just the opposite. He comes to Nazareth. Uh, remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in this town called Nazareth, which is the small podunk village, the region of Galilee. It's near the sea. And it's never even mentioned in the Old Testament or in really any text from the early Roman period, except for the New Testament. What that tells us is that nobody cares about Galilee. There's no significance to it. It's a humble town. And so Jesus comes home to this humble town and he does what he normally does. He goes specifically to the local synagogue, which remember, there are these, these centers for Jewish worship that were created in towns that were far away from the temple. Now, people would make their pilgrimages to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, uh, but they needed a place to worship just kind of week in, week out, where they could hear the scriptures read and so on and so forth. And that's what these synagogues were for. So Jesus, as he's done several times in Mark, he goes into the synagogue and he teaches. He teaches. And we've continued to ask this question, but what message do we think Jesus taught here? We have to assume. It doesn't tell us. It just says he began to teach. And we could probably say that it's, again, something related to the message that, he, 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 that defined his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news. I would imagine that was his message here, too. And maybe he decided to give some of his parables. We, we read in chapter 4, he would teach in these parables, probably in multiple towns. 
Um, so maybe he sprinkled in some of those little poetic explanations of how the kingdom that he's preaching about grows. Maybe there was some of his material like from the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about the ethical vision for life in his kingdom. We don't know exactly, but I think all those things are probably safe bets. And it says that the people recognized, in some sense, the divine wisdom of his teachings. Where did he get these things? What is the wisdom that's given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They were astonished. They were amazed, in some sense. Uh, it's, it's the kind of reaction, this astonished or amazed reaction is the kind of reaction I've had to every TED Talk I've ever listened to, you know? It's like you listen to a 10-minute TED Talk, you're like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I think my life, is, and, my life and the world are going to be fundamentally different because of this TED Talk. 45 minutes later, <laughs> you have no idea what the heck you just listened to, you know? And sometimes, I don't mean to denigrate TED Talks, they are impressive and they often have really wonderful things to say, but my point is that amazement, wow, amazing, is not the same thing as a committed decision to become a disciple. Is that right? Astonishment, amazement is not the same thing as discipleship. So, 30 minutes later, it's very likely that any of these people could have forgotten the amazing things that Jesus taught. And in fact, we see here, uh, that, that, that they turn. Last line here, verse 3. They took offense at him. They took offense at him. Yes, this is amazing. Wow, what wisdom. This is crazy. They're astonished. And now we're offended. Why? Why? Well, I think, I think what he says there, that, or what they say there, it gives us some, some potential avenues into why they were offended by Jesus. First, they, they say this thing. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the carpenter? We, we, we learn here that Jesus was a carpenter, uh, tectone in Greek, which means that he most likely worked with either wood or stone. Uh, maybe, maybe wood has the slight edge here. And this is a trade that he most likely would have learned from his father, his human father, his earthly father, Joseph. Um, if he worked with wood, according to one commentator, he would have the skill to do almost anything. He would know how to craft plows and yokes. He'd know how to make pieces of furniture, cupboards, stools, benches to erect small buildings, to make the beams, the window lattices, the doors, and the bolts. He was incredibly skilled if he was, in fact, a wood carpenter. Um, but it, it also speaks to the fact that he, he comes from a blue-collar, humble origin, right? And this was viewed very differently than our American culture. In American culture, we've got all these myths and these kind of legends around sort of people like building themselves up, building their lives up, from, you know, picking themselves up from their bootstraps, rags to riches, coming from nothing and building a great empire or whatever. Uh, we celebrate those stories. It was not that way <laughs> in the ancient Near East. There's no points for being sort of like a rugged, you know, self-made man. It was simply a, a blue-collar person uh, for whom you would suspect they probably don't know anything about the Torah, about the law. There's certainly not going to be some great religious teacher we should look to. And just as a side note, I said this before, I think, I think one of the first, the first week or two when we, we started the Gospel of Mark, but I want to say it again because I think it's crucial. But, but there is a beautiful like, poetry to the fact that Jesus was a carpenter. Um, specifically, he, he is one who took the raw materials of the world. He took wood, most likely. And, and he fashioned them, he cultivated them into something better and more 
useful. And this is much of, so much overlap with his spiritual work in creation, right? And even his vision, like we believe Jesus is the, the eternal son of God who is present at the creation, who is the agent of the creation of the universe. He was the creator, but then even, not only that, he was the one in the Godhead who gave humanity this very function. Go and cultivate this world, right? Be fruitful and multiply. The, human, the first humans, Adam and Eve in the garden, they were supposed to take this, this raw material and actually begin working and building homes and building houses, but eventually, I assume, building cities. So, Je- so I think there's just this beauty here that Jesus, his, in his human job here during this brief stint on earth, he takes up the work of carpentry. And not only that, but this, this is a reminder, the fact that Jesus worked a so-called secular job for most of his life, up to about the age 30 before he started his public ministry, which was really only three short years that he was a, a, a vocational minister. For most of his life, he worked a secular job, and if that's true, that means that, that your so-called secular work is dignified. I just want you to hear that. If you ever have the thought that, like, eh, you know, sure, I'm a follower of, of Jesus or whatever, but, you know, being a pastor or worship leader or a seminary professor, or I don't know what, a missionary, you it, fill in the blank. If you begin to think that's where the real action is, that's where real faithfulness is. If you want to hold that standard, you have to say that about Jesus, too, for 30 years of his life. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's true. I think if the whole world was full of pastors, it would be a miserable place. And I guarantee you that. The miserable place. His good vision for the world is a variety of gifts and a variety of functions and doing something as simple as building chairs is good. It's important. It's not unspiritual. So just speak that to you wherever you're at. Unless you're like actively <laughs> aiding and abetting, you know, <laughs> corruption or something in your job, um, I suspect there's a great deal of dignity and purpose in whatever it is that you do. Um, that's just a sidebar. So Jesus is a carpenter. There's reason there they could be offended. Number two, it, they mention him as the son of Mary. And that's actually an unusual way to identify someone at, some, at, at this time, uh, culturally. Um, in their context, identifying Jesus as the son of Mary was probably meant to be disrespectful. Um, you would not refer to someone by their mother's name. Um, and likely, uh, I think most scholars are convinced this is probably a little jab um, at his birth. Christians believe in the immaculate conception of Jesus, right? That the Holy Spirit uh, was, was ultimately, God himself was the father of Jesus. But from human perspective, all, the, all people would see in the ancient Near East was this girl who was pregnant before she was married, right? There's scandal, there's scandal in Jesus' family that probably hung over this family, this woman and this son, for their entire lives. And so it's very likely that what they're doing here is, is, is basically calling out the, the illegitimacy, the so-called illegitimacy of Jesus' birth. Oh yeah, isn't this, isn't this the, uh, effectively the bastard son of Mary? Isn't it? Who does he think he is coming here and teaching us? And then finally, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters that we know. So the implication here is that they know his family. They know where he comes from. They know everything about this guy. 
He's not some big shot. He's just from nowheresville like the rest of us. Um, Another side note here. This is actually really interesting, something I hadn't given a lot of thought to about this passage until a couple commentaries pointed it out. But several centuries after the birth of the church, after after these events recorded in the scriptures, um, the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox branches of Christianity developed this doctrine uh, around Mary's perpetual virginity. Have you heard, heard this? Um, so basically, at, at that time, this, there was a, a very serious movement growing around severe asceticism uh, in the church. So that you needed, if you wanted to be a disciple of Jesus, you had to radically embrace self-denial. That, mean, that, mean, that meant embracing poverty. That meant embracing like, like uh, no marriage, or if married, no sex within marriage. Um, that meant embracing things like uh, like eating bland foods, like it, increasingly austere ways of, of discipleship. Um, and there's all kinds of historical context for why that became a movement, but in effect, the church was scandalized by the idea that Mary, as they understood it, in all of her holiness, that she would have had sex, even with her husband, after the birth of Jesus. And so if you were to read Orthodox or Catholic interpretations of this passage and they talk about Jesus' brothers and sisters, uh, they would say, well, this must be referring either to Joseph's children before he married Mary or perhaps to Jesus' cousins or some other arrangement. I just say that because you'll come across that at some point and be like, oh, that's interesting, that's weird. I think the Protestant tradition has it right by taking this at face value. There is nothing wrong with sex in the context of marriage. And the most likely explanation here is that Mary and Joseph had several other sons and daughters after Jesus, and they had sex to do so. Uh, so I hope that's not scandalous for you. Uh, <laughs> I don't imagine it is for most of us here in Portland, but uh, that's more of a, an interesting factoid from church history that you might come across at some point. All that to say, some combination here of overfamiliarity, of small town territorial jealousy, and, and, and the rejection of, of, of Jesus' humble origins is probably what's going on here. Why they are offended by Jesus coming and teaching with the authority that he taught with amongst them. Maybe, like many of us, and many people throughout, throughout the history of the world, had trouble imagining God choosing to work through humble circumstance to enact his plan. Maybe some would look at it and say, that's not what God does. He doesn't use people like this, of this kind of origin, to do what he does. But that's always, always how God has worked in the world. From Adam and Eve, choosing them to be his agents, his, his vice regents in the world, ruling under him and on his behalf through the Bible itself, through modest Israel, this this tiny little nation, through strange prophets who come up looking weird and disheveled, uh, but they're the ones who God has used to speak the truth to the people of God throughout Israel's history and much of the church's history. Don't fall into that trap that God can't use humble. It's basically all he uses. It's basically all he uses. So, there you go. Jesus goes home, and because of, uh, some, in some sense, over-familiarity with him, he's rejected. He's rejected by his hometown. 
and presumably by his family as well. And there are many ways that Christians face like a, a, a similar temptation today um, to, to give ourselves over to this sort of over-familiarity that can breed contempt. I think for many, for many of us in this room, um, we, grew up, we grew up Christians. And uh, for myself, I, I was led to Christ by my mom at four years old. Um, I'm deeply grateful for that memory. I, I, I sincerely, you know, when you come to faith as a young child and then your theology develops later, there's always a little bit of a panic, or at least most people I've talked to is panic. Like, wait, did I really believe? When did I really believe? Have, did I, am I even saved now? Like, what is going on here? And I've, I went through all that, but as I've processed it, I think sincerely in the way that a little four-year-old mind and heart can comprehend that I did comprehend that Jesus loved me. He died for my sins. He'd saved me. Praise God for that. Many of you have that story. You, 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 as long as you can remember, have trusted Jesus. And that's not something to be ashamed of, but there is a, there's a danger there. In fact, that's something to be really grateful for, deeply grateful for. But there is a danger. And the danger is that Jesus can become, you are particularly likely to experience Jesus as old hat if you've walked with him your entire life. You're, you're, you're increasingly likely to experience the blessings and the protections that have come with that in your life as mundane, uh, maybe as annoying at certain parts, at certain times. Growing up as a Christian can lead you to that familiarity that breeds contempt. Um, you can lose the scandal, the exciting scandal of Jesus. Or, you know, I, some of you know this, some of you don't. I grew up in Arkansas. I've li- we've, my wife and I have lived in Portland almost nine years, but I grew up born and raised in Arkansas, kind of in the heart of Bible Belt culture. And, and Bible Belt culture kind of has this same dynamic as well. Um, Bible Belt culture, there are some really wonderful graces about it, but then there's also this thing where if you live in a culture where, it's basically, where it basically gets you social capital to say you're a Christian, weird stuff starts to happen. And you've probably seen it on the news, maybe you've experienced it in some, some you know, subgroup that you've been a part of or whatever, but as soon as uh, you assume that everyone's a Christian, or at least that everyone needs to pay lip service to being a Christian, things get real wonky. The church, the church uh, can begin to suffer. It becomes hard to distinguish what is Christianity from what is politics, from what is business culture, from what is you name it. Um, and then similarly, the blessing of having Jesus kind of penetrating all kinds of conversations and settings can become this over-familiarity that actually robs him of his power, robs him of his beauty, robs him of his majesty, robs him of his glory, robs him of the scandalous nature of the things that he calls of us, asks us to do. So there's danger there. And I would say, whether you came to Christ, whatever culture you come from, whether you've lived in Portland a long time, whatever, um, I, I will just say this. This principle applies to all of us because I think the longer you follow Jesus, maybe it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, maybe it's a year, um, but, but, but the longer you follow Jesus, the longer you follow Jesus, the greater danger you have of becoming desensitized to his glory. I think that's true. Now, the answer to that is not to become less familiar with Jesus, okay? <laughs> I want to be very clear. The answer is not like, oh, great. Well, I don't want to just forget all this Jesus stuff and, 
you know, maybe I'll come back around later or whatever. It's to become more familiar. It's to stop being satisfied with whatever status quo you've entered into in your discipleship to him. Like, yeah, okay, I've kind of had all my, my questions answered, my curiosity satisfied, because then your faith will begin to curdle. No, it's to become more familiar, to keep growing, to keep abiding, to keep asking questions, seeking out answers, not just leaving it at the questions, but seeking out answers. To learn what his kingship means for increasingly every single area of your life. And as new things come up on the news, like, whoa, what is that? Why are we thinking, talking about things in this way? What might Jesus in the Bible have to say about that? If you are legitimately curious and interested, there is an endless well of depth to discover. To see more and more just how good the good news is for each new dilemma that enters our world. That's the task. That's the answer to this. It's not like, oh, well, sorry, I've been following Jesus too long to get excited about him. It's to fight to cling to, to, to new avenues for discovering him and letting him speak into things that you didn't even know how he could speak to beforehand. So there you go. They took offense at him. So what's Jesus going to do? What's his reaction? And this is tragic. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He recognized their reaction either as a truism, like, yeah, this is just kind of what happens, or as a cliche. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. This is a theme. We see this with Joseph. We, think, we see this with Moses. We see this with Jeremiah, and on and on and on. Jesus himself was the ultimate rejected prophet. He's the example par excellence of this principle. You know how Jesus chose to save us? By incarnating into our predicament, right? He left the throne room of God to enter into our fallen world, into our human history, into our skin and bone. He had to unite himself to us. He had to become us in order to save us. He came closer than he could have possibly come. There was no more closer to get than what he did. And he lived amongst people. He lived in a family, and he lived in a town, and he lived with coworkers, and on and on and on. And he ultimately was rejected by that family. Not ultimately. Many actually came to believe in him later. But many of his family members at this point in the story they're feeling the same way. They're rejecting him. We saw it back in, what was it, chapter 3? And this hometown rejection signifies, it points to the larger rejection that he was going to experience when he was crucified as, as the, the nation of Israel. Again, the whole redemptive history that he's coming to enter into and fulfill and bring to its completion through this nation Israel. They're the ones who say, crucify him. Kill him. Put him to death. The very people he came to save, the people he grew up amongst, handed him over for public execution on the cross. Jesus is the rejected hometown hero, the the chief example of it. But he is no less the true Messiah King, the Son of God, whether it's recognized or not. 
He just is who he is. This is really tragic, though. It says, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I find that verse kind of funny. He could do no mighty work there. Well, I guess he did heal a few people. The point is, he did not do all that he could have done. Jesus' ministry was in some sense stifled, not because of his lack of power at all. He will, he does and will do whatever he desires to do. But their lack of faith, their lack of receptivity kept him from doing all that he might have done otherwise. What a tragedy. Jesus dignifies in all his power and all his sovereignty and all his wisdom, he still dignifies human receptivity and human faith and just at the same time, he dignifies a disinterested lack in him, like lack of interest in him also. You're not interested? Okay. And he left. He just left. He left to go among other villages teaching. Or maybe he'd get a better reaction. Or maybe people would receive what he has to offer. That is deeply tragic. One of the most interesting things here too is that he, verse 6, he marveled at this. Jesus was amazed. He marveled because of their unbelief. Isn't that interesting? It's a very human reaction. Whatever Jesus' full divinity means, and he is fully divine, he is truly God, fully God in human flesh. But whatever that means, it does not mean unemotional, unflappable stoicism. He was just like marveling at the unbelief of his hometown. So he left. He left to teach elsewhere. And that's the story. Six short verses, simple little tale. But it's something that we all have to reckon with. Some of us in this room are newer to following Jesus. Maybe, maybe you came to faith six months ago. I know a couple of you that have just come to faith in the last year or two. Praise God for that. My hunch is that you're probably a little more fired up, and I even see that in you. A little more fired up about him, a little more excited, a little more excitable, a little louder, a little more bold with your friends and your families. Others of us have been following him for years, some of us for decades, some of us for half a century. As I said, in my case, I've been following him since early childhood, and there is real risk of becoming over-familiar and desensitized to his beauty, his power, the wisdom, the joy of following him. And so, to conclude, I just say this. I say this, may we not, may we pray today we're going to pray today that we would not become the kinds of individuals or the kind of community collected together that lets him become old news. May it never be that because of our boredom twisting into unbelief that Jesus would look at us and, or that Mar- if, if someone were writing the gospel of Portland today or whatever, that they would say, he could do no mighty works at Door of Hope Northeast because of their lack of belief. He could do no mighty works at Door of Hope Northeast because of their unbelief. Or he could do no mighty works in the Hager household because of their unbelief. He could do no mighty works in the Parker household or you name it.
He will do what he's going to do, of course, but may we put no barriers up. May he not have to dignify our lack of interest. May he not have to dignify our distance from him. May, may he not have to dignify our boredom. May we not leave our first love. So that's the call. That's the call this passage leaves us with, that we might take a moment to evaluate where are we? Where are you? Has your love turned a bit cold? Have you become a bit over-familiar? Do you think about Jesus? You ask yourself the question, what, would your life be materially any different if you stopped believing in Jesus? If you could, I mean, if you could just snap your finger, you don't believe in God anymore, you don't follow Jesus anymore, not self-consciously a disciple of him, would your life look different? Would it be more stressful or less stressful? Be more fun or less fun? Would you have more joy or less joy? Those are the kinds of questions I think can tune us into exactly where we are with this. And as I said, the answer is not to try to become less familiar with Jesus, but it's to commit to abide, to make our home in him, to press in deeper, to bring our curiosity to him. Maybe there are some of us who aren't curious about Jesus anymore because we're afraid of what the answer is going to be. Man, I don't want to look into that issue because it might be upsetting. It might get complicated for my friendships or my family or whatever. That's a real quick recipe for living an absolutely chewed up life, a divided life, ultimately a bored life with Jesus. May it not be here. Amen? Amen. Let's pray to that end. Bow your heads with me.